This morning we'll be in Numbers chapter 8. So you would do well to follow along in your Bible and see if what I have to say is true because ultimately there's no authority in me apart from the Scriptures. So if anyone, including myself, gets up here and speaks something other than what we have seen in the Scriptures, then let that person be accursed. That's what Paul says in Galatians 1. So um, our hope and our confidence in truth does not lie on the person who speaks, but rather on the, the Word of God which is true and which abides, which abides forever. So that's why it's important for us to follow along in our own Bibles and make sure that <clears throat> what I'm saying is true. Where were you about one year ago today? November 2015. Do you remember? Maybe you were watching one of the early primary b- debates. It's hard to believe that that the election season happened, well, started a long time even before that, but maybe you were hopeful of a solid candidate to vote for come this time in 2016. Around this time last year, I was over at Sterling Heights listening to Will Galkin preach, and I didn't remember that off the top of my head. I had to look that up. But maybe you remember where you were and what you were doing. But I can assure you, assure you that if you ask the people of Israel at the time of the writing or the events of Numbers chapter 8, where they were one year earlier, that they would remember without hesitation. Because in Numbers 8, the nation of Israel is now at the foot of Mount Sinai, getting ready to embark on their journey into Canaan. But one year early, where were they? They were in Egypt. For 430 years, the people of Israel were living in Egypt. And at first it was good because Joseph was second in command in all of Egypt. But then Joseph died. And the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died. And the favor of Israel turned into disfavor. Kindness and protection turned into hatred and opposition. So we're in Numbers 8. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. But one year prior to these events, God was bringing the plagues on Egypt in an unspeakably powerful way. And then the parting of the Red Sea... And then God speaking to Moses at Mount Sinai and giving him the law. And then the people obeying God. People giving to the work of God so that the tabernacle could be constructed. And then God coming to live in the midst of their camp. It was a great time for the people of Israel. God had delivered them in a powerful way and now they were glad and happy to serve Him. The priests were helping the people to worship God properly. They were the mediators that God required. Things were looking up in Israel. The promised land was in their sights. It was very likely that if they obeyed, not very likely, it was true that if they obeyed God's commands in the wilderness, then they would have made it to the promised land, all of them. So far in the book of Numbers, the people of Israel are looking at things God's way. They want to do things God's way. And that's the way it's supposed to be. God is dwelling among His people. His people are obeying Him. And God is blessing them. What a great relationship that God has uh, affected in the people of Israel. And if they will obey Him, He will bless them. What a great covenant that He has made with them. Here in Numbers chapter 8, we see some more of Israel wanting to do what God has required. So let me read the text for us beginning in verse 1. 
Then the word of the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you mount the lamps, the seven lamps which will give light in the front of the lampstand. Aaron therefore did so. He mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand. Hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers it was hammered work. According to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. Sprinkle purifying water on them and let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes and they will be clean. Then let let them take a bull with its grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, and a second bull you shall take for a sin offering. You shall present the Levites before the tent of meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel and present the Levites before the Lord. And the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Aaron shall then present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel that they may qualify to perform the service of the Lord. Now the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls and offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. He shall have the Levites stand before Aaron and before his sons so as to present them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Then after that, the Levites may go in and serve the tent of meeting. But you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. But I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from among the sons of Israel to perform the services of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel so that there will be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary. Thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel to the Levites, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so the sons of Israel did to them. The Levites, too, purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. Then, after the Levites went in to perform their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and before his sons, just as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. Here in this text we see that God sets apart spiritual workers for the benefit of the congregation. These spiritual workers are called the Levites here. Their responsibility is to help care for the, the, the uh, production, the execution of the worship that's going on within the tabernacle. So we're going to see two main things in this text. First, light of the tabernacle. There are instructions there given for the light of the tabernacle. And then second, the workers of the tabernacle in verses 5 through the end of the chapter. So first, the light of the tabernacle. Before we get to the Levites and their responsibility to help care for the tabernacle, we have this short section in verses 1 through 4 that describe God's desire for the lampstand to give light. So here we're, we've had all these instructions up until this point in Exodus, Leviticus, and now Numbers as to what the tabernacle ought to look like, 
and what kind of furniture ought to be in the tabernacle and how each of these things are used. And here we have towards the ends, end of that kind of instruction, the, the curtains have been hung, the, the, the structure has been set up, the curtains have been hung, um, the, 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 the coverings have been secured, all the tabernacle has, furniture has been crafted and put in place, and so now it's time to light the tabernacle, the inside, so that there's light. Keep in mind there's no windows in here. It's completely covered. It would have been, would have been completely dark if a person walked out with any light or walked in with any light. So the instructions are given here. They're given in more detail in Exodus chapter 25. So if you want to know more about this, you can find out. But this is the idea of what this lampstand might look like. Now the lampstand was symbolic, a lot like the other furniture in the tabernacle. It was symbolic of something that God was doing. For example, the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence. In fact, God resided above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, his presence was there. Here, this lampstand is also symbolic, and we should note three things about it according to verse 4. First, it's, it's a hammered work of gold. It's made of gold. It's, according to Exodus 25, it's made of one talent of gold, so it weighs about 75 pounds. Remember, the Kohathites had to transport this thing, and they used um, uh, poles in order to do this. They carried it on their shoulders. Everything in the tabernacle was made of gold. All the furniture was made of gold. Once you got outside of the tabernacle, the structure was made of silver. And once you got out into the courtyard of the tabernacle, those things were made of bronze, like the bronze altar, for example. And what that seems to be saying is that the, the most important um, uh, metals are in the center of where God is, right? It, it's, it's where God is. God is the most precious of all. And so the center of the tabernacle is more precious than, than the outside of the tabernacle, for example. The lampstand was also a blossoming tree. Uh, secondly, so it was a blossoming tree. The base was like an olive tree, according to Exodus 25, and the branches were like an almond tree. And the third thing that we should notice is that verse 2, it was designed to give us light, or to give the, the, Israel, the, the priests light. When you mount the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in front of the lampstand. On the other side of the lampstand was the table of showbread, and that was um, where you had the 12 pieces of unleavened bread that symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the primary purpose of this lampstand was to give light, to, so that the lamp, according to Exodus 27, was never to go out. It was a perpetual light, which symbolized that God was continu continually with them, the light of His presence, so to speak that he would never leave them. And so these instructions are given here in verses 1 through 4. But then we move to the heart of the passage here, verses 5 through 26, where we see the workers of the tabernacle. The workers of the tabernacle. And God shows his required sacrifices that he has in order for them to be his, to be claimed as his. He requires some sacrifices. Now, what we need to keep in mind is that the Levite workers were not able to enter the temple other than to set it up. They weren't allowed to enter into the tabernacle or temple later on uh, while it was in operation. Only when they would move to a new location, set up the tabernacle, put everything in its proper place, that was the only time they were allowed in there. After that, it had to be only the, 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 high pri the priests and the high priest that could actually go into the tabernacle. 
So recognize that we might think of priests and Levites as identical, but they're not. Okay, priests and Levites are different. The, the, the Levites are a subset, or I should say the priests are a subset of the Levites, the Levitical family. So that means that all priests are Levites. If you're going to be a priest, you had to be from the Levitical family, but not all Levites are priests. Does that make sense? So could, maybe a, as an illustration, all women are humans, but not all humans are women, right? So women's are a subset of the human race, right? So that's, that's the idea here. That the, you have the Levitical family. Those are the only people, people that could work with the tabernacle. And a subset of the Levitical family was the priest. So what we're talking about is not the priests here. We're talking about the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites who were not part of Aaron's family, but actually uh, not, not part of the, the, priest, the priestly family. But they were actually workers that, that God gifted to, the, to Aaron's family for the work of uh, transportation and care of the holy objects. So God required that in order for them to be presented to Aaron's family and ultimately to Israel, that there had to be some sacrifices given. They had to be first cleansed and purified. Notice in verse 7, they had to be sprinkled with water. And then in the middle of the verse, it says that they had to shave their entire body. And then in the last part of the verse, they had to wash their clothes. In verse 8, they're to offer a grain offering. In verse 13, a sin offering and a burnt offering. So they were supposed to be consecrated, set apart as holy, as God's special people to, to do this work. And so this is more than just external cleansing. Make sure you, you look proper when you're doing this. This is... The, the sacrifices show that there needed to be atonement that was made for their sins. Because if you're going to come into contact with these objects that are going to reflect God's glory and His presence, then you who work with these objects also need to be holy and be able to enter into God's presence to some level. And so the Levites are, they have these offerings given for them so that they could be given to, to service. But notice in verse 12, that these Levites were effectively presented as offerings themselves. Now, not sacrifice, not sacrifices. They're not, their whole bodies aren't killed or anything and laid on the altar. But notice verse 12. Now, the Levites shall lay their hands on the head of the bulls. So this is the idea of substitution. And offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to make atonement. So they had to have their sins atoned for. Verse 13. You shall have the Levites stand before Aaron and before his sons so as to present them as a wave offering. So the idea is not just that, you know, just go through this ritual, but actually these people are being set apart as my offerings or, or as offerings for, for the work of the tabernacle. And so they had to be um, holy before they could be used as a symbolic offering, not a, not, not a literal offering here. The reason for the Levites being offered is found in verses 12 or verses 14 through 19, and that is that God, that is because of God's ownership of them. God owned the Levite workers. If the service of the tabernacle was going to operate properly, then they needed lots of things in order for it to happen. You couldn't just have the priests show up in the morning and say, "Okay, let's start doing things." They needed to have actual animals. They had to have people who helped prepare these things. They had to have the tabernacle set up. And that's what the Levites were for. 
but they could not serve until after they were consecrated for God's purposes. And let me show you that God does own them, and so he has every right to use them for his purposes. Look at verse 14. Thus you shall separate you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And then verse 16. For they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself. Verse 17. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine. And then at the end of the verse, I sanctified them for myself. And verse 18. I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn. So God's saying multiple times, and usually once you have a repetition in Scripture, we need to pay attention. So like when you're teacher in school used to say something more than once. You ought, we ought to need to pay attention. This is important. And, and when God says, the Levites are mine, they're wholly given to me, I've taken them for myself, I've sanctified them for myself, I've taken them, they belong to me. God's saying something about His ownership of them. And why is it that they belong to God? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is implied and the other is clear in the text. The implied answer is that God created them. And so therefore, He owns everybody. Right? He, he owns us in that sense that He made us and we have the responsibility to obey Him. But in another sense, here's a second one that's clear in the text. Why do the Levites belong to God? Look at verse, um, verse 17. Every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine among the, man, among the men and among the animals. So why is this? On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. And then um, look at verse 18. But I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. So this takes us back to where we were when we were looking at chapter 3. Chapter 3 said that we need to have an accounting of all the people, all the firstborn in Israel. And for each one of those firstborn, they need to have a Levite that is their substitute. So in other words, God owns the best of every family, the firstborn. Okay, for those of you who are firstborn, that's biblical. Okay, um, being slightly facetious there, but but in in the Old Testament, it was the person who received the inheritance, and so that's what that's why they were so important, right? That's that's who got the the best cut. They got the double portion of the father's inheritance, and so he's saying the firstborn belongs to me. The best of what you have belongs to me, and so if you if that's true, then really I own all of you. But instead of them coming to help each of the firstborn of Israel coming to help at the temple in place of each of those firstborn I'm going to take a Levite and for each Levite there would be a substitute and there would be an offering that had to be made in order to make this official and at the end they came up I think it was like 23 short and so they had those families that didn't have a Levite to be their substitute effectively they had to pay some money to the Levitical priests in order to to say that they have been redeemed they're given over to God and so what God is saying is Listen, I own all of you. I own the best of what you have, and the expression of that is in the work of these Levites who actually are substitutes for you because why? Verse 17, I redeemed you. I bought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you. And so why did God do this? What was God doing when He redeemed these firstborn from Egypt. What was he doing when he redeemed the Levites? Well, the purpose is found in verse 19. Why did God take them? Was it going to be kind of, you know, God's going to keep them over here in his little corner 
so that he can just have them do some kind of monkish worship? No. Look at verse 19. I have, so why did he redeem them? I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from among the sons of Israel to perform the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel so that there will be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary. So God's saying, I take these Levites for myself, but I do that in order to gift them, verse 19, to Aaron and his family. Why? For your benefit. As a whole, the congregation of Israel, you need to have me in your presence. You can't have me in your presence unless you have people, spiritual workers, that will take care of the operation, the execution, the transportation of the sacrifices and the worship that happens at the tabernacle. So what's God doing here? He's saying, listen, I take them for myself, but I take them in order to give them to you so that they will be a blessing to you and that you can now come to me and worship. And additionally, these Levites apparently had the responsibility to protect the nation from plagues. And the way that they did that was by upholding physical and moral uprightness within the camp. They had to make sure that people were not coming and offering faulty sacrifices or spotted lambs, for example, or ones with broken bones, or to make sure that people were actually having their, um, their conflicts resolved properly and to make sure that people weren't coming to the tabernacle unclean. So they were kind of the, guard, the guards at the door of the tabernacle, so to speak, to make sure that worship was being done properly. And this was a good thing because when worship was not done properly, what would happen? Well, at the end of verse 19, plagues would come. And so, in that sense, they were helping to, to protect the holiness within the entire camp. In verses 23 through 26, we see the limitations, God's limitations on the Levite workers. And that is um, that they were, they were only allowed to work for the tabernacle, at least the physical labor and the guard duty, from the ages of 25 to 50. And the reason for that, again, is this is physical labor. They're carrying heavy objects um, out of the tabernacle. They're, they're making sure that people are coming in properly for the worship of, of God. And so it required physical labor. It also required alertness. And so um, maybe when God knew that once a person gets over 50 or once they're under 25, I'll let you make application for that one, all right? All right, let's see if I can get this next one. There we go. Let's consider three principles this morning uh, that I think we can draw out from the text. Uh, first, is that God claims us as his own. Okay, we are not Levites. We're not priests in the sense of the Old Testament. But like with the Levites, God owns us all. Right? He, he made us, and although he didn't rescue us from Egypt like he did with them, he did rescue us from a greater enemy. And therefore, we belong to him. That is that every single Christian, in a sense, is like a Levite in the sense that we all belong to him. We all have been marked off as holy. We all have been consecrated for God's purposes. To borrow the language of Numbers 8, God could say, 
in our context that the Christians of Ambassador Baptist Church are mine. I have taken them. They belong to me because I have redeemed them. This is consistent with what we see in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 that say that our bodies are not our own, but that we are the temples of the living God. The Holy Spirit of God resides in us and we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. So God claims us as His own. He owns us. He owns every single one of us as believers. And it might sound to us like that's kind of selfish for God to claim us for Himself. Why can't He just let us do what we want? Of course, we know that God can never be sinfully selfish because He can do no wrong. But recognize that just like with the Levites, God doesn't claim us in order to abuse us or to make our lives miserable. What do you think the reason is that God has claimed us as His own? The answer is the same reason that He claimed the Levites. And that is so that God could use us for the work of His service. God can use us for the work of His service. So He claims every single one of of us as believers, as His own. He says, I've claimed you so that I can use you for the work of service. Let me give it a contemporary application. God claims us in order to give us to the church. God claims us, and when I say us, I mean each believer. God claims us in order to give us to the church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So we can see that the purpose in God claiming us is is to gift us to the church. Now, before we look at this passage, I want to be clear that the New Testament church is not equivalent to Old Testament Israel. Not precisely equivalent. We did not replace Israel as God's special people. Now, there are lots of similarities there, but, but one of the dangers in making that connection, which I don't think is is a, an, a correct one, is that the promises and commands of Israel, now we feel like we're responsible for all those things. And while there is lots of help in the Old Testament commands, and while there's lots of assurance in the Old Testament promises, those were not given to us as New Testament believers. Those were given to Old Testament Israel. We have our own promises and commands to follow. We are not under the law. We are under Christ. We are under Um, grace. But there is a close parallel between how God claimed and gifted the Levites for the worship of Himself and God's claiming of every single Christian and gifting them to the church. Let's see if we can see that in the text here in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. In other words, he has the authority to do what he wills. That's the point of verses 9 and 10. Verse 11, 
And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So, in verse 7 or verse 8, we have a quotation from Psalm 68. But scholars believe that when David wrote that psalm, Psalm 68, he was bringing in the idea, the theme of Numbers chapter 8. And the point is that by virtue of Christ's death, Christ, God, has made a claim on all his sheep so that everyone who turns from their sins and who believes in Jesus Christ as the means of their salvation, the only means of their salvation, that they are claimed by God. They are owned by God. And what I often call it is doubly owned by God, right? We're created by Him and we're redeemed by Him, so we owe Him all that we have and all that we are. The Bible says that Christ died for our sins and was buried and was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. And that all who acknowledge their sin and turn from their sin and trust in Jesus alone will be saved. We just saw that uh, when Bill was reading earlier from 1 John 5, that he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God will not see life. Or in John 3, uh, 16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And, And this promise of salvation from God's wrath is extended to all who will listen, all who will believe, all even to you today that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. So in his purchasing of us, that he purchased us with his blood, 1 Peter 3.18, or 1.18, in his purchasing of us, we belong to him. We are claimed by him. And notice in this text, verse 8 that these, when Christ led out the fulfillment of this psalm, when he led out these host of captives, he gave them as gifts to men. And specifically, he gave them, the, the application of it that Paul uses here in Ephesians 4 is that he gave them as gifts of the church, and he goes on to list several offices that were used throughout church history, and some of which are used today. And these offices now, you know, pro, these former um, offices of prophets, uh, and, and apostles and so on were gifted for the church. But now the, the only offices that remained are evangelists, which is uh, debatable. There are some people who believe that that's not technically an office but a job, but we won't get into that. And then there's pastors and teachers. Those are gifted to the church. And then he goes on to say that this is, for, this is, a, this is a gift to the church, but at, that each one of us ought to be involved in this, this uh, benefit, benefiting the church. Because in verse 15, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects. And that's not just talking about the pastor to the congregation. That's talking about each one of us. We have a responsibility to speak the truth in one another. So that means that each one of us are claimed by God and gifted to the church for the service of, of worship. Christ owns us. We are his servants and given for the advancement and the growth of the church. And all of this is in keeping with the recurring theme that we have been seeing, and that is that God desires to bless His people. 
God is not a, a um, sinfully selfish God who, who wants to just make people's lives miserable. God wants to claim us as His own so that we can be used for the service of the church. And that really goes along with our last point, which, which is connected to or drawn out from the first four verses of Numbers 8. Remember the lampstand? God desires to bless His people. With the lampstand, the Old Testament believer was given another reminder that God is holy and that He demands all His people come to Him on His terms so that He can dwell among them in, in order to bless them. So this shedding of light was a picture of God's presence among them, that He would never leave them. That's why the, the priests had to keep this um, flame going all the time. They had to keep filling it with oil so that it would never go out. It's a picture of God's, uh, God's light, God's presence among them. Again, we don't have the Old Testament tabernacle. We don't have a building or a, a, um, a place where we go that, that, that is a specific place where only God can come and only we, can, we can only meet God there. In the New Testament, we have uh, the Holy Spirit residing in us. And there are two main references to the light in the New Testament. First is Jesus. Jesus calls himself the true light. In the Old Testament, they had this light that was a constant picture of God's presence. So in the evening, when God would lead them out in the wilderness, that pillar of fire would be, would be leading them. And when they came to rest, if it was evening time, that pillar of fire would be there, a symbol of God's presence. This light in the lampstand was similar to that. But in the New Testament, Jews, and they still do today, remember God's presence with them each year, especially when they celebrate the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feasts of Lights. And this would be a torch lighting ceremony to remind them where they would light a, a, one of these lights each day. And on the last day of this memorial week, when the lights were at the brightest, Jesus walks into the temple and says, I am the light of the world. What he's saying is that he is God in human flesh living among them. He is the means by which God sends his blessing to his people. And of course, the primary way that Jesus blesses his people, and he blesses all, is by offering salvation through his once-for-all atonement. So that's the first, the first, um, uh, that's the first mention of light, really, in the New Testament that connects to the Old Testament p pillar of fire or to the light in the lampstand. The second mention is the church. Jesus said to his disciples, "You are the what." the light of the world, the salt of the earth. As Christians, we are called the temple of God, and that is that God has made His home within us through His Holy Spirit. And in that way, we are now the light. We now display to others that God lives among us. No, we haven't become God. We're not Jesus. We're not God in human flesh like He was. But... By virtue of His claiming of us and His transforming of us, His, setting, his, his consecration of us, setting us apart for His purposes, we have become so much like Him that He is willing to treat us as His light in the absence of physical Jesus. Right? Jesus in His body, does He live on this earth? In His body, in bodily form? No. He lives at the right hand of the throne of God. So how does God display His light today? 
And it is through people like you and me who serve as his representatives, albeit imperfect. But, but God chooses to do that. Do you remember how the church is symbolized in Revelation chapter 1? Jesus says, I am standing among the what? The golden lampstands. And what does he threaten to a few of the churches if they don't straighten up? I will put your light out. What's he saying there? I stand among those, specifically churches, who are representations of God's glory in this day, in this era. And if you don't straighten up, you're no longer going to be my representative. Do you see? We are the light of the world. And so when God claims us as his own, he does a great thing for us and a great thing for us as a whole. A great thing for me individually, great thing for you individually, but also a great thing for us. He claims us as his own in order to gift us for the service of the church. Why? Why, why do we need to have the church? Why do we need to have this? Well, again, it goes back to this main thing that we keep seeing, and that, that is that God wants to bless us. God wants us to you know, enjoy his gifts. And one of the great gifts that he gives to us as a church is one another. People who love Jesus Christ and who are using their spiritual gifts, who are using their energies and their efforts for the sake of the advancement and the well-being of the local church. God sets apart spiritual workers so that they can help others come into his presence so that God can bless them. Let's pray. Oh, great Father in heaven, thankful for your plan and thankful for um, being able to see this morning how it has unfolded over time so that you could, you could dwell among your people from the very beginning of time. You have sought to have a relationship with those who are made in your image. You did it in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then when they sinned against you, Lord, you didn't abandon them, finally send them into eternal hell even though they certainly deserved it and and um, Lord, we deserve the same. But, but instead, you worked to provide a way for them to be reconciled unto you and so that you could actually come and live among them. And, and you did that through the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple. And then certainly in the best representation of who you are is Jesus Christ because he is you in bodily form. He is... God the Son, and so he, he represents all of who you are. So we can know exactly what you desire, and, and so he came and made his dwelling among us so that we could have a relationship with you. He became our mediator. There's only one mediator between us and you, and it's, it's the man, Jesus Christ. And, and Lord, even after we have come to recognize that and we've come to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ, we still have sins and we still turn away from you at times. But Lord, you have made it possible and you continue to pursue us so that we can have a relationship with you so that you can bless us. And the best way that you bless us is by giving us more of yourself, helping us to know you more, to enjoy your presence, because that really is what all of eternity is about. You will live among your people. You will be our God and we will be your people. And we long for that day when we can do it um, in person and when we can enjoy your presence we can enjoy the presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit forever 
Um, but until that time, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a down payment of that future guarantee, and that is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Thank you for the church that you have created um, and have purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd help us to see our individual part in it. Not to see the church as a spectator sport, but to see that each one of us ought to be involved in, in, um, in the production and the well-being and advancement of the church. Because you have claimed each one of us. We belong to you and we have been given for the benefit of this church particularly and for um, all of Christ's people of all time. We look forward to the day when we will worship with them in heaven and praise the Lamb who is slain. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.